1: And definitely upon meeting, it was so many other connections that connect, but more so just the thought process about things that can empower Detroit communities just stood tall. Uh, And then from there so much more uh, she was a big asset to what we did with gig fair earlier this year and then finding out so much about what she does with operations school and really her story in general and also like you're seeing so much between her and her husband and the creativity connection there this is a beautiful one beautiful one and plus you probably seen my post and it's not just her it's some other dynamic black women that I think are doing a lot just not in business but also in community and creativity and you know, Creativity and community are the, like, foundation of everything I'm passionate about. Hence, it goes over to Detroit. It's different. Rachel Allen, how are you today?
0: I'm wonderful, Kari. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Definitely, definitely. It's definitely taking some time (laughs) to get this going. And, you know,
0: things happen.
1: And we definitely know it's the right time when they happen. So we're going to start this off like usual, classic Detroit is different story. Okay. Your story, what brought you and your family to Detroit? How? What's the Detroit roots?
0: Mm-hmm. So my mom was born in Detroit mm-hmm. and she actually moved to California and that's where she met my dad. Huh. So myself and all of my siblings were born in Pasadena, California. Hmm. We moved back to Detroit just before I turned, I think, four years old. So I started kindergarten here. One of the first places that we moved was the Sojourner Truth Home. So we lived on the east side in the projects. And we pretty much stayed on the east side for most of the time that I lived in Detroit. So I lived in just about every neighborhood on the east side in Detroit. 10 different schools, 12 years, product of DPSCD, and uh, yeah, so I consider myself uh, being from Detroit, but I always have to add that caveat of from Detroit, not necessarily born in Detroit.
1: That's unique. And then uh, you you just touched on something that's uh, definitely another historic Detroit fact. So uh, she touched on the Journal Truth Home. So a lot of people kind of know. Uh, the story of the Brewster mm-hmm. projects because, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt came and it was so much like more in the story. And, and, you know, people talk about the the history of the Brewsters and, you know, the way that Joe Lewis's boxing gym was down there, but I don't know how many people are aware, but the Sojourner Truth Homes were really one of the first iterations of what would be later known as like housing projects. Mm-hmm. And this really goes more so into racial discrimination because a lot of the uh, a lot of the I guess The the black people that were coming here through the great migration Mm -hmm. uh, definitely kind of leaning towards the east side, though. That's like kind of out the footprint, obviously, of where the Brewsters are at. And when we think about so many uh, black folks being in black bottom, but the Sojourner Truths were closer to some other manufacturing, development, Mm -hmm. industry and just dealing with like just such hardcore racism, the government and also, you know. The big three stepped in and wanted to create a space Mm -hmm. and place for black people, hence the Sojourner Truths. Now, that is the origin story of the Sojourner Truth Homes. Knowing my travels and everything, and if you've ever been there, and that's definitely one of those neighborhoods where usually you know people over there if you're over there. You know, uh, so you know we think about Coney Gardens. We think about we uh, think about a little bit of Persian, a little bit of Osborne. Like mm-hmm. it's a that's a unique community. And you said you've been all over the East Side, and the East Side has mm. uh, uh, it's own culture, just like the West Side does. But the culture of the East Side, especially now today, is I believe some of the roots of a lot of the home ownership in a, the non, as they say, like glamorous. Yeah. communities still exist strong um, so I give that long lee- leeway to just like give some context so people can understand that the Sojourner Truth Homes were part of like housing projects where you had yeah. families that were there for generations up through maybe like the I would say maybe like the early, the late 90s mm-hmm. early 2000s so it wasn't like the average where it's like okay this family ages out and then they're no longer here like that was like
0: their community. Absolutely. And interestingly, we lived in what was kind of a, a second phase. So it was one of the newer units. Mm-hmm. So we were the first people to live in our unit mm-hmm. back in, you know, what had to probably be like 87. My grandfather worked for the city of Detroit. He was an exterminator. And so he was able to get us on the list to get into that unit. So As a young person going to Atkinson Elementary, we used to walk to school from there. You would not have been able to tell me that that wasn't an upper middle class suburban neighborhood, right? It was beautifully constructed. We had a big backyard and we had all of our friends who lived there. So it's folks now that I know who I grew up with that I can date all the way back to being in the Sojourner Truth. And it wasn't until my mom started making more income that her rent went up and it was time for her to look at potentially buying a house. So from there, we ended up moving to like the state fair and Grasha area. Mm -hmm. And we were one of the first black families in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So by about 1991, I think there was one other black family on our block at the time. And this was really the height of white flight. So I started elementary school at Trix Elementary, probably third grade by then. And I remember having multiracial friends. We could ride our bike around the neighborhood. And then it happened right around the end of third grade into fourth grade. All the white kids left. There were no more white kids in our neighborhood. And so we're talking about 48205, which is one of the most dangerous zip codes in the country now. Known as the Red Zone, all of that. There was a time when that was a white neighborhood. Completely. Completely. Mm-hmm.
1: That was definitely, like, one of those, like, you know, Pizza Hut uh, soccer team. Like, <laughs> it it was a cusp of, of like, during the, the early 90s uh, for us that, you know, that have been there. Like, that was an area, you know, you're like, crashing and State Fair Cross. Mm-hmm. And then you think about it and then. It became a little bit more prevalent um, as we see different uh, divestment in communities as the, the people occupying the community changes. And for sure. And that's been a story uh, for black communities across America. And, and in some ways, um, in certain places throughout the world uh, mm-hmm. for, for a while. So seeing that, that definitely had to be impactful. So let's go a little to your mom's story. What led her? Um, first, what community would, did she grow up in when she was in Detroit? And then what led her out to Cali?
0: So my mother grew up in Jefferson Chalmers. So... She lived at 669 Navajo, which is one of those blocks uh, just almost before you get to the Detroit River. So growing up, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' home, and it was a beautiful, beautiful community. And so it was a little – it was a probably now in retrospect – It probably was a distressed community like most, but being so close to the Detroit River, it gave a sense of kind of serene that you just don't realize you're having when you're growing up. So this was a part of town that most people had never seen south of Jefferson, for example. And so my mom and actually let me go back and say That my grandparents bought that house, and I would probably say if my mom was born in '55, they bought that house right around that time. They, you know, had to pay cash $8,000 to buy that house, and so when you put that into kind of um, translation into kind of what that was. There weren't mortgages. You couldn't, you know, you had to save your money and pay cash for a house because not everybody was able to, you know, get the the financing to do that at the time. So they bought the house and then my mom moved to California I'd probably say in her uh, early 20s and it really, I think, was just a way to kind of get as far away from Michigan probably as possible. I think she ended up in a couple other places before then and then my father was from St. Louis He happened to have migrated to Los Angeles mm. And then my parents were both In ministry when they met each other And then fell in love in, in California
1: Ain't that something boy, mm-hmm. boy, St. Louis is another one of those <laughs> St. Louis is another one of those classic mm-hmm. uh, Cities, I, I kind of liken it Because I have so much family from Cincinnati mm-hmm. Where it's like, these are some southern people yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you ever have a chance to go to St. Louis and everything, I think for us, you know, in our age range, like, you know, like Nelly and like him mm-hmm. introducing like, like even country grammar. Like yeah. Country grammar. You know, you're thinking to yourself, like, <laughs> how, how southern is, is St. Louis? And it's like, yeah, if you go there, it's, it's definitely a place where, um, you know, it, it, it's certain things like the Midwest. Yeah. So it'll be a guy in gators <laughs> that <Yeah>. will <laughs> that will eat some barbecue ribs, <laughs> with you know, but but yeah. definitely um, a rich culture. So mm-hmm. that and, and then getting into ministry, that's uh, some different stories. So like you, you're touching on a couple different things when we think about having an understanding of the black experience, because mm-hmm. I'm guessing that. Definitely, they're leading. Um, they're leading their journey uh, in ministry, connecting with Black folks. So that's Absolutely. a diverse group of Black folks. Because LA Black folks, or when, when I think of California, Southern Southern California Black folks, that's a also a different thought process too. So to get a little bit of awe mm-hmm. really connects with. Um, a vast audience for sure so upon coming back why why do you think your mom uh wanted to come back to detroit if she has traveled Mm -hmm. many different places what was the calling to come back here because at that point like coming back to detroit in the the, the, she's almost like crossing paths of coming back to detroit and definitely a form of black leadership being at the helm Mm -hmm. but with that black leadership as you know we talk about on detroit is different often you know it's Uh, The resources um, begin to get taken away. You know, the minute a black person steps into a leadership position, whatever your budget was, you can almost say Mm -hmm. cut it in half.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I would say it was my grandmother becoming ill that got my mother to come back. So my parents had separated my my grandmother was was sick with cancer and so it was an opportunity for my mom to come back help take care of her mom and so i think there was an idea that we would return back to california my mom loved it there and i believe if let's see it had to be about maybe 1990 that my grandmother passed away mm-hmm. And so it was kind of made clear, like, we're going to be here for a little bit of a a while. So I remember being in elementary school and I will always say to people, you know, I'm from California, but we're moving back. This is just temporary. You know, I'm just going to be in Detroit for a little bit. And we essentially never went back. And so it took last year, my husband and I were in California for our anniversary, and I went to Pasadena for the first time and went to find my childhood home. So it was really important for me because I had spent my whole life hearing stories about just how beautiful Pasadena was. And my parents would say things like, we used to live right down the street from the Rose Bowl. Mm -hmm. And I would be like, yeah, yeah, they're probably just saying that. So when I find the house, we lived right down the street from the Rose Bowl. Like literally, like in the next block is the Rose Bowl Stadium. And so it was this really amazing moment to see this house see this neighborhood and to almost get a a glimpse of understanding into my parents that i don't know that i would have had without that moment so the first thing i thought about was how difficult of a decision it must have been to leave california to come back to detroit Mm -hmm. because you know while i love my city it's nothing like pasadena california it's Mm -hmm. beautiful it's warm and you almost can understand Having to go from Pasadena, California to the Sojourner Truth Homes, Mm -hmm. that's a wide step back, you know what I'm saying, out of necessity. She came home because she wanted to help take care of her mother. Mm -hmm. But it made me realize that must not have been an easy decision. So that was one thing. I think the other thing that I thought about was how progressive black Young black folks were in the 70s and 80s in California when this was at the height of the epidemic of the crack epidemic, you know, to, to be in a community to be thriving and in the you know, the middle class. That wouldn't have been easy. Rent was high back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So when I say that I got a better understanding of my parents, it was like you don't even know what you would have done back then. And so my dad became a victim of the crack epidemic in about 1985. And so it was one of those things that really changed the trajectory of our family and most people, black folks' families at that time. So it was kind of, again, one of those those times where my mother, I'm sure, had to make a decision of, hey, this isn't the direction I want for my family. And it coincided with, with her coming back to Detroit to support her mother. So I say that because standing there in that neighborhood and kind of feeling, you know, what at one point would have been my, my parents in the height, you know, of, of their success was a really affirming feeling. And it, it gave me this strange sense of kind of completion that I don't know that I would have ever gotten, you know what I mean? Which is you, you're, you left a place thinking you would come back to it and it was a beautiful home, a beautiful neighborhood. I I almost wonder what our lives would have been like had we got the opportunity to have grown up in in California, but obviously you know our path was meant to be something very different.
1: Yeah, and uh, definitely mutual friend. Uh, I just had an interview with DeWan Dandridge. They may run coincide, mm-hmm. and and I like to give context because, and I know sometimes if everybody that listens and follows every episode will be like, wow, Carrie's giving the same point, <laughs> but these same points are the threads of life that like weave the tapestry of this Mm -hmm. black american experience and one of the things about uh the struggles that our community had with crack cocaine like looking back on it especially like if you grew up listening to hip-hop and and you know if you're around our age like i think if you were born basically like maybe like 68 to about 88, you, you grew up with hip-hop. Like, it grew up with you. So it's easy to follow the trajectory of hip-hop where, like, it's looked down upon the person that uses drugs and you idolize a person that sells drugs. Right. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if the Just Say No campaign worked, but definitely the Crack is Whack campaign <laughs> worked. And it, it lacks the perspective of the way that Crack Cocaine was... I guess marketed and presented it th- presented to to the community and just Black America at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why I like the the show Snowfall, which yeah. really kind of takes place in that footprint because mm-hmm. it gives a. Uh, as I told Duane, like, and I, and I've said this before, like I say, I'm beating people over the head with this, <laughs> like, cocaine throughout the '70s was a glamour drug. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was like, you know, crystal champagne or 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 like you know sushi caviar it was something looked at like opulence yeah. and success and really like the effects of it looking bad that wasn't really shared with with most people so so when we think of what cocaine showed people it was like wow everybody's doing cocaine mm-hmm. like and now you have a what crack was was like a a, a cheaper version Of cocaine, so it's almost like when, uh, like the luxury cars. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, I can't get the S-class bins or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm not a car person, (laughs) but I can get the this bins. That's what crack was. So people are thinking like, why would people do that? How would people do that? They didn't have a context of understanding the impacts that it would have, especially when you know marijuana was already, you know. i mean as it is now like it was more of a sociable you know it's not going to impact your life like that and just what it did to change a lot of the roles and families broke apart families it made younger people kind of you know fall into the position of having a lot of resources you know like so Mm -hmm. now like we look at the story of like a freeway ricky ross you look at a guy that um as he says like through high school he's you know basically functionally illiterate. You know, he knew how to kind of play some tennis. His tennis coach is the person that kind of introduces him to access to this, uh, to sell to sell cocaine. And he's the person that suggests making crack of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this connects to like the Iran-Contra deal. Like, I mean, you know, all of this. But you go from basically being like a 20-year-old that would probably be working at, you know, whatever, you know, menial job, to now becoming a the the richest person you know in in southern Los Angeles yeah. And being a, a part of lending back to, like, you know, because black black folks really don't get options from banks. So he's investing in, in in properties. I mean, like, what people say, he invested in Anita Breaker's first album. But, like, a lot of those Solar Records had a lot of backing from Freeway Ricky Ross. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, not necessarily, like, a direct connection. It's not like sure. they walked in a room smoky. But the right people knew, hey, we're going to need some street money to get this off the ground. As that happens in many for many black businesses because we don't have access to traditional lending. So street lending mm-hmm. takes place but now you have multitudes of like basically like teenagers and people in their early 20s looked at with the with the wisdom and the esteem while people that are older are struggling with this addiction
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it it fractures the community yeah you know yeah. Uh, exponentially and and I'm sure for someone like you and you were young but now you probably can see because it it becomes seeing it, in los angeles and then travel to detroit you slowly see some of those impacts and Mm -hmm. i know that also had to have been like wow this is this
0: is interesting yeah i think that fortunately i was so young that Mm -hmm. i didn't fully understand the ramifications of what was happening so what i saw my father's addiction translate into is him not being present Mm -hmm. and Fortunately, my mother was one who never talked bad about him. I didn't know that my dad suffered with a drug addiction until I was much, much, much older. And it took me some years to understand that those periods that he had gone dark were periods where he was battling mental illness or incarceration or housing insecurity and homelessness. All of those things that kind of stem back to a drug addiction. And it took, you know, many years to be able to really repair the relationship with my father and being angry. All of those things that young you know, folks will have that experience. But it took me to have my own children to put into perspective how difficult that must have been. So we all know how powerful of a drug crack cocaine was. Once you try it once, you are addicted. So you are no longer the person that you were. At one point, my father became sober he was able to rebuild his life and his career and and was able to bounce back from that and, and work to rebuild some of those relationships. But not everybody has that luxury. And so for me, I think growing up in Detroit, I knew that there was some, some, I'd say, I don't want to say discrepancies, but I knew that there was a difference between the way that we lived predominantly on the east side of Detroit, that was different than the way that other people live. So I look back and would say things like We were so poor, I thought we were middle class because everyone was poor. Everybody around me was poor to the point where everybody had food stamps. Nobody had cars. We all relied on public transportation or for the most part, not a lot of people we knew owned their homes or just things that were symptoms of poverty that I just took for granted because I thought everyone lived that way. And it probably took going to a school like Detroit School of the Arts, which was a magnet high school, and you had kids from all across the city going to it. That made me realize, wait a minute, not everybody lives like this. So I was probably in about ninth grade when I started to see, wait a minute, is kids my age who have a car? Yeah, My mama don't even have a car. Yep. And I started to be like, there's something different out there. But I never even for the most part, traveled to the West side. I was such a diehard East sider. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, being told don't go to the West side. Cause it's not safe over there. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget being 18 years old and being like, this is what telegraph road looks like. Cause I had never seen it. Just, I mean, being that far East, you just don't go to the west side for no yeah. reason. And my biggest fear would have been literally that somebody who knew that I did not know the west side could pick me up, take me to the west side and leave me there because and I would just, be lost. <laughs> just been lost yeah. because that's that should tell you how far like that was a whole nother world for me. And so I, I use it as an example because my I started creeping my way west and the more west that I got, the more my territory started to expand. So I got my first apartment when I was 17 in the North End. And Mm -hmm. I don't even know that we called it the North End back then, Mm -hmm. but it was on Woodward and Mm Harmon. And it was an opportunity for me to be closer to Mary Grove College, where I was going to school. And then so kind of after being a student at Mary Grove, I moved to Oak Park. And then from Oak Park, I moved to uh, maybe back to Detroit. But my my kind of territory continued to expand further and further away from the west side or from the east side and not because i didn't no longer wanted to live there but i started to realize that there was just so much more of the city and the suburbs and the world that i needed to see but i share that because there are still so many people who are just so hyper local to the community that they are from Mm -hmm. that they don't realize that they can you know, even have an impact in another community because you are just so focused on the one that you live in. Very much so. Um, that reminds
1: me of when we were on a rap tour. Um, we were in we were in New York, and we're walking to the show. We're in Times Square, and it was my homie. Uh, I just saw him, Myo um, Thomas a con, uh in Vegas now and everything. And uh, we're walking through, and I've been to Times Square before, right? And it's like maybe about ten of us. We're walking through, and I'm I'm just, you know, I'm, like, trying to get to the show to make sure things are coordinated because, like, if you've ever done any hip-hop shows, you know, and especially I got, like, all these people, it's like they got to perform. I want to make sure that the DJ has their music. And, and my mind is focused on that, right? So we're walking, and I'm walking through Times Square. And anybody that's ever been to Times Square, it's like sensory overload. It's like a, <laughs> It's like a Las Vegas casino almost, like, like at all these lights stores people <clears throat> and this is around the time like when they first shut down Times square where like cars aren't driving through and everything so you know they have the big steps and all of this stuff i'm just walking to get to the show and i turn around and, and like nobody else is behind me like they're way back right and i'm like yo why, why are y'all taking all day like we got to get here and then and then Kyle was like, man, these people ain't never been nowhere. And then that's when my mm-hmm. man, and right now he travels everywhere. My man Dutch. He was like, yo, man, I ain't never been nowhere other than Cedar Point. Yeah. I got to take this in. And it made me kind of stop and think, I'm like, damn. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's like, I don't even, one of them people, I don't even go to the east side. He was a yeah. west sider that just did not travel to the east side. So now I have him in Times Square other than Cedar Point. He's never been anywhere else. And it's like, wow, this, yeah, I guess you're right because I can't. I couldn't fathom, you know, being like this is your first time and yeah. everything. So like it's it's many stories like that. And, and some of this I, I think goes back to um as people say, you need exposure, you need exposure. Uh some of the, the things that are now labeled as toxic, and in some ways they can have, I don't know, I don't like to label them toxic, but they can have some um they can have some detrimental impacts, but they started from safety reasons. Right. You know, it was a point in time, like some of the people on the east side, like black folks knew you go to the west side, you're going to run into problems. For sure. You go to certain communities, you're going to run into problems. So it, it started as like a defense mechanism to not end up in trouble.
0: For sure. I will agree that the advice that I would get about going to the west side was more around being aware of your surroundings, being with people that you know. So the safety and the comfort of being in your own neighborhood was really to protect you. Yes. This was also around the time when I talked about white flight, where there was literally a fence that went along eight mile. And it was meant to remind you that you should not be on this other side of eight mile if you don't belong here. So growing up in a community where it was very commonplace, where, People didn't have a driver's license or your tags were bad. It was also a way to keep you out of those communities because for sure, if you cross eight mile, you are going to be pulled over, arrested, gone to jail. And we would know people who that would happen to. So thinking about kind of the the invisible fence of sorts that you get is, well, I can't go mm-hmm. north to the suburbs because they I'm not supposed to be there. That's not safe. I can't go west because that's not safe. Yeah. So the only place that is safe is if I stay on the east side. And so yeah. there was a, a comfort and a familiarity from, I mean, we used to ride our bikes all over, all over. Wherever we lived, we'd be just riding, you know, all up to Hoover and Shainer and, you know, Eastland Mall and that kind of stuff. But there was safety and comfort because we knew that. But to that same point, it really did take me to be in adulthood before I could feel that same level of comfortability on the West side. And so I have used that to even translate my experience as to why I've wanted to see so much of the world. So my husband and I do a lot of travel. We particularly love international travel. And I found myself in Beijing, China. So my husband and I got married in Beijing in 2016. And I found myself on the Great Wall of China saying, I am a girl from the east side of Detroit what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And it was so mind boggling because again, it made me realize how limiting we try to make the boundaries of community be for people. So again, the folks who were telling me that were saying that to keep me safe. Yes. I don't want anything to happen mm-hmm. to you. So stay right here in your little neighborhood. But it's it's really been kind of the opposite effect where it has made me want to see more of the world And I have now been working to create the kind of life for myself where I can be a world traveler. And I say that because every time I go to a new place or a new space, there was a certain level of humility that I have to have, of learning and education. You can't just, because you're an American, you can't just come to a new place and all of a sudden think you can take it over. But it really does compel me to think about, it's, it's a bit more beyond just exposure. We can expose young kids to travel and let them see the world. But I think there's another element to how do we remove some of the mental fences that we tend to impose on people when we ask them to just, you know, stay in their comfort zone, which might be their, the confines of their neighborhood?
1: I agree. And, and, and I definitely agree with you. I just like to always give context. Like sometimes mm-hmm. uh, it's like uh, Piper, Piper Carter, you'll know, be like, you're the biggest cheerleader for the old black thought. I am. And I'm also a big cheerleader, obviously, from the black male perspective, because sometimes I think it can get blanketed as if like, oh, that was backwards. Why would you do that? And "Eh." no, it it had a context at one point in time. And I'm not saying that it's it's like everything, everything has context and perspective. It's not like the origin of where your great grandmother was coming from. And I'm not saying you, but Mm -hmm. like all of us, it was to harm us. Yeah. At one point in time, especially when it came to like, you know, as you know, the Green Book and everything like Mm -hmm. that, it's just certain neighborhoods and certain communities. um, You know, I would say definitely even certain parts of Michigan as a truck driver that's traveled a lot of Michigan. It's certain places where I do, you know, I mean, I I don't think you're going to get your head bashed in per se, Mm -hmm. but it's certain places that are you not from around here. Yeah and when you feel that presence and then you uh, may not have the 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 you know for me i think that m- my gift of gab is probably one of my one of my strong suits in understanding the empathy of people body language you know but this comes from interacting with a lot of different people you know what i mean truck driving i mean especially those southern routes i mean i i, did, I saw confederate tattoos all the time some mm-hmm. of them you know as as much as i could consider it, like homies different perspectives but you still i, I it still takes a, a keen awareness and if you're not as familiar in being in new spaces yeah and understanding those cultures like you say that humility then yes it can exponentially become very 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 dangerous yeah um so that that kind of moves to your your mom so mm-hmm. she comes back um for caretaking and caretaking if, if for anybody that that we know like um when we think about one of the One of the key gateways to poverty in America is dealing with um, some catastrophic illness. Mm -hmm. But that catastrophic illness does have impacts on others. Um, As many people's story is, I came back for caretaking. I came back for caretaking, uh, which is something that I tip my hat if you're ever in that situation. And I think more resources are becoming are being developed because, as they always say, sometimes the caretaker... um, You know, it it ends up it it will impact them more. So Uh, what was your mother doing when she came here? How was she dealing with uh, being in that role? Because it's always even more difficult when you like go from child to parent. And then Mm -hmm. it kind of becomes like you're like a parent. You you kind of become a parent to your parent in certain ways.
0: So I'd like to think that my mom moved here. she was doing mostly corporate work. I remember her working at the wellness plan for a while and I think she was about 35 when my grandmother passed away. so I put that into perspective because she's a you know a single mom, four kids and 35 and I'm I mean that she would have been younger than I am today mm-hmm. taking on that type of responsibility. And so I recognize having been, and I'd say she's the only child, but she has older siblings or older half siblings, but really the only child at home to take care of her mother it must have been really difficult. My grandfather was still alive, and I think he he survived probably about another 15 years after mm-hmm. that time period. So it was moving on from taking care of her mother and then to just supporting her father in a yeah. different way. So my grandfather. And, you know, I really attribute my grandfather in particular as being one of the most important men in my life. So, you know, we were very special to him, my, my siblings and I, but in particular my twin sister and I were really special to my grandfather. And there was a certain level of presence and... That's almost fortitude that came with being around my grandfather. And I remember it being so tough and abrasive when I was a teenager and I hated it. So in between our different moving around and whatever, we would come back and stay with my grandfather. Mm-hmm. So when I would lived in, in these different neighborhoods... People would never really put two and two together. that If they saw us back with my grandfather, it meant we had been through an eviction somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But my grandfather's house was always the safe spot. So we might have been going through something. And we, that's that Jefferson Chalmers area. Absolutely. So at one point, we, we lived on in the Jefferson Chalmers area. We'd go back to that. But then at some point, the house that my, gr- my grandfather actually helped my mom buy, the house that was on Rossini, which was like the State Fair and Gratia area. At some point, my grandfather takes that house, sells the house over on Navajo, and the house on State Fair and Gratia became the family home. So anytime that we would move to a different neighborhood, something would happen with the house, we'd be right back on any. So for a long time, that neighborhood felt like my nucleus neighborhood. It was the place I could walk to the corner store. All my friends lived there. And it was just a really safe space for us. So we essentially had that as our family home until my grandfather passed away. And then even at one point, my mother ended up having a house down the street from my grandfather. So we've always been kind of in close proximity to each other. And again, I would say that, you know, sometimes our friends wouldn't put two and two together. We'd come back every year because we had had some type of housing insecurity somewhere else. We'd come back here, get ourselves together. So my grandfather was always this really important person. And I can specifically remember around the times I was like 13, 14, 15 years old. He had so many different rules and he was so tough. But I, re- I can really appreciate that that type of, you know, parenting now because I find myself at almost 40 saying the same things that my grandfather used to say, you know, and he would be so tough on us. But it was the kind of thing that you don't want to hear as a kid, but you need to hear because it's like I can attribute most of my success to to my parents and to my grandfather, my grandfather especially. And I can even think to different things that I do or that I have or I've experienced And I'll be thinking my grandfather would be so proud of me because he made the path so clear about just being a good person, being fiscally responsible, taking care of your business and, you know, and just doing the right thing by people. And so, you know, to this day, I I make decisions with my grandfather kind of in my rear view of what would my grandfather think about this? And if it was something that he were alive to say, now, you know, you ain't got no business doing that. I wouldn't do it, you know. So I I think about how that is almost a lost thing that we don't have. You know, a lot of families don't grow up with those strong elders or folks in their family who can be that for their family. In that case, the patriarch of their family that can, you know, lead that influence for generations. Like my kids are still reaping dividends from the things that my grandfather put into me, you know.
1: Yeah. And and it's unique because as you're saying that I'm thinking about some of those figures in my family, like. So it, I I already feel the energy that that was one of those granddads that like you're you're at granddad's house you leave a ninja turtle out or whatever <laughs> and, and you go to sleep and he going to wake you up and be like hey <laughs> <laughs> Where's yeah. things supposed to go? And you'd be yeah. like, "Hey, man, damn, you know what I'm saying? He tripping, yeah. <laughs> you know." So and so, I think some of that same disconnect may even happen in that journey because you know, uh, you know, it, it this is this is you know, fragmented families that come together, and then we families have their own community and culture. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, it seems like, oh, granddad. Oh,
0: well, God. I'll give you this perfect you know? <laughs> example because this is one that I still use to this day. So, my grandfather would say, "I lock my doors at nine o'clock." deadboat If you're not in here, you're not coming in. Okay. And so again, as of now, 15, 16 year old. Oh my God, my grandpa is tripping. And Mm. so there was one day that I did not make it into the house by nine o'clock, and Mm -hmm. I did not get in. Mm. And he literally said, you know, like I'm not raising no hoes is what he said to me. Like we, no, if you're not in here by nine o'clock. And I remember being like, what kind of thing is that to say to your granddaughter? And almost, you know, 25 years later, I find myself saying, my door is locked at 9 o'clock. You're not in here. You're not in here. Hilarious. And it's the it's the sense of also going back to what you said about safety. Yes. Right? If I let my kids tra- traipse in here at any old time of the night, they're subject to not be safe. No telling what they're doing. So I found myself laughing one time about that. I don't know about raising no hoes, but it was definitely this idea of like, I want you to be a classy young lady who don't stay out at night. It's basically mm-hmm. the point he was making. So and I got that because I was never with the person coming in past nine o'clock. But even with my own kids, I do think that there are those things that we don't we unconsciously find ourselves, you know, lending to our own parenting based on the way that we were raised. And so, again, my grandfather would have been the person who would say, you know, again, you want. You want your place where you live to be safe. You want it to operate a certain way. If people can't follow by that, then they don't need to be there, you know. And so, again, I'm just grateful for that because especially in this season of my life, I can hear my grandfather beaming in pride of, like, making the right decisions, doing the right things for the family, taking care of the family. You know, those are all things that give me a lot of pride in this in this phase of my life.
1: And I like you shared that. Um, and I even like that you gave that comment because those are sometimes the comments I'll defend and they'll say, that's such... <laughs> toxic masculinity. You know, so, and I'm like, look, I'm not I'm not going to stand up for the comment, but you right. still have to understand the context and the perspective that led to him feeling that way and saying that so, so bluntly. Right. Like it's a cultural. So like so something that weighs on my heart is sometimes when people from outside our community speak on the ways that how our family should function. And I'm saying you can take bits and pieces of it, but unless you're from our culture, you won't understand the context of where that's coming from. That's right. And we can't, like, throw the baby out with the bathwater, quote unquote. And that's what I why I think a lot of elders, you know, men and women, you know, sometimes walk away and say, look, I just give up. Because... Yeah. You know, I'm I'm in fights with you when, you know, sometimes the way they say things are very antiquated, can be not how you want them. It's like, hey, don't nobody talk to me like this, granddad. <laughs> I don't care who you are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's a place and space for the elders to exist in, in our family structure where we have to kind of lend an ear to some of what they're saying, mm-hmm. you know, push back humbly because their position as an elder in our community, and then... Over time it's surprising because they sometimes will you know as time goes on and they see things function, they'll open up and they'll say, "All right, I still sort of don't agree from what mm-hmm. I know and what I think is safe, but I see that sh- that things are moving along well, and it's not like it's not like just such a zero sum game because mm-hmm. Our communities, as far as I'm concerned, like that black family structure, it it takes that whole tapestry. It takes the people you don't get along with. It takes, you know, because really it's the observation of children that notice, Okay, I see, you know, my aunts don't necessarily get along, but they can come together for a Christmas. Yeah. I see my, you know, my cousins may not like each other, but it is certain things that they do do, you know, my elders can bring them together. And then that builds a foundation, I think, moving forward. As people always say, whatever happened to Big Mama? Whatever happened to Big mm-hmm. Mama? A lot
0: of Big Mamas just, you know, said no mas. Yeah, well, I would even say in, in being, you know, our age at this point, it's going to be a matter of time before we are the elders. Yes. And so I was just making the comment of how seriously I take the role in my family of, of kind of being... A stabilizer of sorts. So I have, right. you know, family all across the country, and we have a pretty small family as it is. But I, I do take a lot of pride in being somebody that is consistent and dependable in our family for for my kids and for my nieces and nephews, because I, I do think that 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 big mom role is somebody chose to be that, and yes. it might not have been the grandma or the auntie, but there were some decisions that that person kind of had to make, OK, you you're going to have holidays at my house or uh, I'm going to be the person people come to when they're in distress. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's all stuff I want to do, but I think about that from a way of when we look back t- through our families it's not a coincidence that it's that particular person. And it looks a little different in each family. But I think about how intentional it must have been for those people to say, you know what? There's a lot of chaotic things happening in our family. But I'm going to be the person who lives in the same house for 30 years so that people always have a place to be. I have those folks in my family. And I think we take for granted when we see it. But you, you don't really stop to think about why those people are so important in the family. and You generally don't get a bunch of them. But when you do have them, I think about an aunt that I have that, you know, whether you have talked to her in a year, five years or 10 years, everybody in the family knew they could go to her house, whether it was for a holiday or they could stay in the basement or whatever that might be. So as we get older, I stop to think about the kind of role that I want to play in my family. You know, I was with my family just a couple of week, about a week ago. In Baltimore. And I thought about how all of these people, my my children, my siblings, now my my um, great niece, Mm -hmm. all of these generations of people who came from my mother, from one person. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it's my own age and mortality creeping up on me. But I was able to stop and think, Lord willing, 20 years from now, you're going to be standing in the kitchen. And see your children and their children and all of the things that come from just your language, right? So I, I think there's something really powerful about getting older and more mature and and being able to value that that time is coming for me and really asking myself, what do what kind of legacy do I want to leave for my kids and my family? And who do I want to be? So it's, it's definitely something I give a lot of thought to.
1: And, and it's powerful and it's needed because like that... That space, when we look at it, and it's tough sometimes, too, because in that aging process, you know, you may look at that family member and be like, oh, man, they, they taking advantage of you. They exploiting you and everything. But I like you touched on the word chaos. Being black in America is a chaotic situation. So it's going to be certain things that happen, even for us that seem, you know, the most well put together and mm-hmm. upwardly mobile It's certain things that you need that 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 wisdom of that person that understands even sometimes when it's not spoken yeah you know they they can tell like when you reach out and talk to them on the phone you know my, my granny in cincinnati lord knows it's, it's so funny and my grandma in cleveland they're the exact opposite in the sense of like you know sometimes like one's always pessimistic one's always optimistic mm-hmm. and everything but it's still wisdom and game and they've seen so much in life mm-hmm. that you can Whatever the details, you know, they don't understand podcasts and YouTube and all of that <laughs> stuff. But then when I start talking about the people and the what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and they'll, you know, tell different stories um, that that do connect. Like uh, my grandma in Cincinnati, Imogene. <laughs> <Emma Jean. laughs> so... Imogene Jean was, uh, she went to high school in Little Rock, Arkansas. She had the option of being one of the students to, uh, to like, I guess, break the color line. And so, you know, we were talking about the Jerry Jones incident, because I was like, you were down there then. And then, like, my grandma laughed for a second, and she spoke. And I was like, well, you know, he just says he was in the crowd for curiosity. If people don't know, the the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, <clears throat> at the time when... Um, this is like uh, around the Brown versus Board of Education. Or the, the racial barriers were being broken for students to enter uh, a high school in Little Rock, Arkansas. And this is the same time when my grandma is attending the black school in Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was just like, I just don't believe that. Like, I mean, why would you, I mean, the National Guard had to come. You're just curious. You want to see? Nah, he had to be a part of that mob. And just the way she laughed and she said, well, the way them white folks were then, And basically what she's saying is everybody white was in the crowd. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? She just had a way to like cut through. And it's that same type of logic and then flip it to say, yeah, but so that's why I stayed at my school. But then I needed to get a job, which basically saying sometimes you're going to have to engage with, you know, the uh, opposition, you know, the white folks that didn't want you to come to the school. And it's a way to to engage. And I can tap right into that wisdom instead of just looking at, like, oh, you know, I just must, you know, watch a bunch of YouTube videos of what's happening now and mm-hmm. how do YouTube people deal with uh, what's happening if a story is suppressed and all of that stuff. That wisdom is deep. Yeah. Um, on to the pivot. So, Marygrove. Mm-hmm. And Marygrove, you, you have even a deeper connection with Marygrove now. But um, why did you choose Marygrove? And you were there at 17. So, that means that you were mm-hmm. double promoted, as people know. Uh <laughs> So or you had like one of those birthdays where your mom was like, you could be like the youngest kid <laughs> in school. And it's like, yeah, go on and let her go in school, you know.
0: Well, interestingly, I was at the Detroit School of the Arts through my the start of my senior year. I found that I was pregnant in August before my, my senior year started. And I had a big decision to make, which is I had a nine to four schedule in high school. So I knew I couldn't work. I wouldn't be able to do a lot. And I remember there being a lot of stairs at Mary Girl, And I remember having, the, not Mary Girl but DSA. And I remember thinking, I'm gonna be pregnant most of my senior year and I don't know that I wanna do it here. Mm-hmm. So I was able to go to an alternative school. Did you go to Catherine Ferguson? I did not go to Catherine Ferguson. It was a an alternative school in Macomb County. Mm-hmm. And it was just on the other side of 8 Mile from where I was living at so the time. So, like
1: the Macomb County version of Catherine Ferguson.
0: Kind so. of. Because it was more of an alternative school. And not everybody there had kids. So, it was kind of interesting because when I went there to take the test to kind of get in, mm-hmm. I had a 4.0 grade point average. And I took the written exam. And the principal sat me and my mother down and was like, why are you here? We, we can't really. F- we were looking at your transcripts. <clears throat> this doesn't make any sense why you're choosing to spend your senior year here. And I was pregnant. I was about maybe mm, a couple months pregnant, maybe, but not showing or anything. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, I'm kind of pregnant. And so they're like, okay. So because my grades were so stellar, they created a customized curriculum for me. So I only needed six weeks of classroom instruction to get my diploma early. Mm -hmm. So while everybody else was doing regular assignments, I literally learned how to type for six weeks so I used this this particular curriculum all I did for six weeks was learn how to type and I was hunting and pecking and within six weeks I was doing like 80 words a minute mm-hmm. so I graduated probably by November of what would have been my my senior year I got a job and I literally was walking home one day from the high school walk past what used to be Clyde's carpet on eight mile and let's say maybe like near Gratiot And I saw a now hiring sign in the window and because this is how I used to get jobs back then. There would be a sign in the window and you go in and they're like, okay. And I got a $10 an hour job working at Clyde's Carpet for the remainder of my senior year. So from November through probably April when I gave birth to my son, I was working at a carpet store and I was the cashier. And I remember doing the job and saving my money and, like, trying to think of a plan because I knew I wanted to go to college, which was, at that time was Mary Grove. And then I ended up getting a full scholarship in the honors program to go to Mary Grove College. That's deep.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, what stood out about Mary Grove?
0: I actually wanted to go to Arizona State University. Mm-hmm. I remember, this is kind kind of silly, but I had to be about 13 years old when I first saw the movie Waiting to Exhale. And there was this scene that Whitney Houston (laughs) is driving through the desert. (laughs) And I was like, wherever that is, that's where I want to go. Okay. And I found out that it was, um, I think it was one of the Sonoran deserts. And I remember saying Arizona State University is there. That's where I'm going to go. So I like Mm -hmm. sent off for these brochures. So literally from ninth through 12th grade, I had it in my heart that I was going to go to Arizona State University. Mm -hmm. When I found out that I was pregnant, that felt impossible. And so even though I had a really strong grade point average, I only, Mary Grove College was the only college I applied to. It was Mm. mostly because I had two aunts or a cousin and an aunt who had both went through Mary Grove. Mm. And in their own way, they said, that's the place that you need to be. And I respected them enough to say, if they're telling me to go to Mary Grove, that's where I should be. And I loved it. It changed my life for so many different reasons. It was just what I needed, which was small classroom sizes. We never had lecture halls, So every class would have been, you know, no more than 20 people, for example. And the professors know you by name. Your friends know you by name. And it, it felt it always felt like home. It was I, very anxiety producing when I think about it. I used to have a lot of panic attacks because I would be
1: the youngest person. Because that's the other thing. Yeah. I think, but two things I want to out. This is further that connection of elder and young person because, like, just that observation of, like, hey, auntie, what what'd you think about this? Mm-hmm. And that's the, you know what I'm saying? That's that pivot of check out Mary Grove. Yeah. But also, you know, when when you're the youngest person in a school, because I've, I've done schools with uh, being that young person. And then I've also flipped. I've been the old person mm-hmm. in the school, too. It can be, like, overwhelming. You're going from high school, you're a teenager, and then these people are, like, grown, like, yeah, I just got off work.
0: Oh, they're for sure grown. Mary Grove was a commuter school, so it was a handful of 18-year-olds in those classes, Mm -hmm. but it was mostly adults. I can distinctly remember having classes with 80-year-old people and and being like, wow, like, your mind is so sharp that you want to be in school at 80 years Mm -hmm. old. So I think that was a very different dynamic for sure. It was more of a mature place to be. I also had a kid. It would be times I would bring my kid to school. And then I worked at Marygrove. So I would literally catch three buses from the east side of Detroit. Mm -hmm. This was before I moved to the North End. And I would literally catch three buses, go to Marygrove, do my work-study job, take three more buses, and do it all over again. And I probably did that for at least a year or so before I got my apartment with my cousin And when we got the apartment, it was an opportunity to be a little closer to Mary Grove, but also to really kind of step out on my own and really start to decide, okay, you know, what kind of life do I want to live for myself? And I remember... Just still being so mature, even at 18, 19, having this apartment and my cousin and I would have friends that would come over and I would be like, y'all got to go. I got homework to do. I was always very serious and very studious. So sometimes it's no surprise that people hear kind of what I'm up to these days and are like, whatever. I was
1: she was on that path.
0: Very much so. Very much so
1: for everybody watching if you got young people or whatever um, and and she's going to attest to this at least I, I feel she's going to echo this if you are depending upon where your silliness is because I definitely was silly so if you go to a school where you are like that youngest person around nothing but grown folks I mean it's going to be a couple laughs and stuff but it ain't say about a bill to college years no, no you know so it will immediately stick you to like you're going to shape up because these are grown people they got grown stuff to do yeah you know, you a kid, you may have kids <laughs> stuff to do, but you're gonna. it's going to break that pattern and you're going to be in there and in that mix. Because a couple of my classes at Lewis College of Business mm-hmm. were like that. And I was like, damn, these people, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, it, I took uh, a day class where it was like basically nothing but um, nothing but like early 20 something. And I was like, you know, uh, it, it felt like high school again. Yeah. But other than that, every other class was like, you know, you're here with serious people. For it's sure. a class project. We're not talking about. You know, Jay Z album and stuff. It's like, hey, what we doing? What we working on? And I think that shapes up the mind of a student in a different way. So I would suggest, if you have that kid, you know, and you're in a community college, I'm a community college guy. Think about taking some night classes too. Mm -hmm. Don't just think about taking early classes because just being exposed around some of the adults and the way that they, you know, ask questions and go about studying, um, it can be eye opening to just even. See different variations of what grown up looks like.
0: For sure. I remember having just some amazing folks that I got to learn with mm-hmm. and who were generous to me, who would give me rides. I was just sharing this as a laugh uh, with a friend of mine, Aleah Harvey Quinn, who, who went to Mary Girl with me. And fast forward all these years later, you know, she's the work that she's doing is is an outbirth of who she was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so she said, you know, we, it was a time where when she didn't have a car, I would take her when I didn't have a car. She would take me like people who you could who were my age, who I found that affinity with. And I'm so grateful for those those long term relationships. But it was mostly people who were really serious, who had kids and families and jobs. And it just kind of helped that sense of this. We don't have a lot of time, you know, here to be playing around. And so. I think that that partly helped inspire why I started my first business. I was still in undergrad at Marygrove when I started my first business. So I was 21 years old. I started a farmer's insurance agency in my basement Mm. and then transferred that to Farmington Hills. And within a year of selling insurance, I was a top producing agent.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. That's deep. Um, So with that entrepreneurship, what what was that connection? Were you going to school for something like that? Or was it just an opportunity? It seems like, oh, this is a niche. I think I can do it.
0: Yeah, it was an opportunity. So by that time, by the time I'm 21, I had gotten married. I was on my second Mm child. So I was doing all of this while being an undergrad. Mm -hmm. And it was my, my husband at the time. Who, said, who was looking for kind of an entrepreneurial pursuit. He had been an entrepreneur before. And I actually said I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. So kind of growing up the way that time I did. Out, time
1: out, time out. For everybody <laughs> that knows Rachel, Lord knows. That's almost like a, a, a soundbite that <laughs> live in infamy. <laughs>
0: Seriously. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something about that because this is really, really powerful. I remember being 19 years old and I set an intention for my life which was I had, from the time that I was 13 through 18 years old, I, we had probably been evicted about five or six times. And when I say evicted, I don't mean move. I mean we had to move, but bailiffs came and we were evicted. So multiple times I would come home from school and I left in the morning, was perfectly fine.
1: Everything, outside.
0: everything is outside. So that was really traumatic. And when I think about my life, Some of the most traumatic memories were tied to being evicted because you lose all of the things that you find valuable or precious. You have a um, you lose a sense of security and safety with something as basic as where you live and where you can come home to. So it was very chaotic in that way. And then the shame and embarrassment, like
1: when you see people get evicted, like, you know, your neighbors are looking. Absolutely. Absolutely. and, And when you're younger, it's tougher. You know, oh my so gosh. People kind of turn their back, but they look in it like you see you, you see the shades open up. Absolutely. You know, lines, in fact,
0: my brother has this really this traumatic experience. My brother has since passed away, but he came home on the school bus on his birthday, and we had been evicted that wow. day. So all the kids mm-hmm. on the bus saw him be evicted. Uh, and so is that kind of shame that you're mm-hmm. like, it's it's a very traumatic experience that I don't know that people really understand. Mm-hmm. So for me it was I'm getting out of this cycle because it's really a cycle. Once you get into a series of, you know, mispayments and it's really easy to stay on that. Yeah. And again, it took me some years to understand how that works, but it's so common because it can happen to anybody, right? And so, I remember being about 19 so I, again, I had gotten my own place and I said what my intention for my life at 19 years old, I wanted to live in the same house forever. Mm. I wanted to drive a Mm Taurus and I wanted to be a teacher so that I could get paid every two weeks. Mm. And I remember saying that so regularly that people who knew me was like, first off, we don't believe it, but that you would have set an intention that for me being who I am was in in that way was comforting. It was to say, I just want to live in the same house forever. So when I bought my first home at 21, The idea was I'm never leaving here and my kids will never leave here because I want them to live in one house for their whole life and know what that feels like. Now, by the grace of God, I still have that home and our family and my kids have grown up in the same house their whole life. Right. Mm -hmm. In addition to, to move into different communities, I did get the tourists. I did become a teacher, but so many other things happened in my life. So when I started the first business, I was so reluctant about doing it because it was the unknown. And I really didn't want to, but I I went ahead with it. And I realized that it was something that I could do well. Again, I took it for granted that those are sales skills and customer service and business. But what I realized was I liked having the flexibility to make my own money. Mm -hmm. And so to be 21 years old making six figures, I remember months, most months I made at least $10,000 a month at 21 years old. Mm -hmm. I bought myself a Cadillac at 23 years old. And it was Mm -hmm. like not because I was being flashy. It was because... I, I could at that point. That was where I really got a taste for I like being the author of my own destiny. And I love being able to say what I have the desire to do, I can do. And so I stayed in entrepreneurship for a while, created a number of businesses. And then when I transitioned out of my my first marriage, I went back into education, was able to have a very successful career in schools. I became A school principal by the time I was like 27, 28 years old. I transitioned into central office administration. So I ran what was one school, then three schools, then 15 schools. And then I was able to come back to entrepreneurship as a way for me to marry the two. So I was able to build my career off of what I learned in my corporate career. Mm -hmm. And so now I am in entrepreneurship full time and doing a number of business ventures that excuse me, really set my soul on fire. And I think that I recognize how much of a privilege it is to do work that sets your soul on fire. So many times we do jobs because we have to, right? When I was a single mom with my own four kids, I worked many a job that I hated. I went to schools and I, like, I, my stomach hurt pulling in the parking lot, but it paid the bills and I had to take care of my family. So I recognize how much of a privilege it is to be in a space where I get to do things that I'm excited about. I get to spend my time and my days how I want to. I get to be paid handsomely for the work that I get to do. And then I get to help people. So it's, I, I don't, for me, I don't know that there's anything better that I could be doing professionally than what I'm doing today.
1: That's deep. Um, I, I often say my biggest joy in this is the autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that autonomy, that freedom to do, you know, at, you know, cause that's the, like it definitely comes with consequence. I mean, you you know, um, but if I want to take a day off and say, you know what, I'm going to just watch Black Panther 2 four times in a <laughs> row at the movie theater, I have that opportunity right. without that same level of, like, stress or anxiety of, like, a person like, hey, where you at? What, yeah. what, what's going on? So so I enjoy and embrace that. And and you're right. Like, making decisions out of circumstance or when you feel there's circumstance versus choice it's two totally different worlds. Yeah, and going back to even the facing an eviction and just the, the 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 lack of money and what that can be for many people. I mean, I'm looking at my DTE bill as I brought brought that up, and I think to myself like, as much as it's like, wow, you know, it's gonna be tight, you know, and I can pay this but i really think about my neighbors yeah. you know that are and it's like especially in a neighborhood like mine it's like if my bill is this high i know their bill is That's this right. high and if they're not giving like the the hula hoops and the work cuz you know people make it seem like it's just you know the government's just giving money to these people yeah. no it's a lot of work and then even the barriers of entry uh it's like that movie Claudine or something to to stay where it's like okay to as they say functionally Poor, sure. you know. So like sometimes to get assistance, you have to be so impoverished, you can't even be functionally poor. Right. So you gotta like pick up odd jobs. You make us pound cakes on the side, and you know what I'm saying? Like, hey, you wanna buy my my brother car, and I can get half of that. <laughs> or like it's it's. It's a very, it, it it becomes a culture in itself, yeah. but it's oppressive, it's aggressive, it's violent. And One of the things I always say is like, I'm willing to, and I think many people in my community are, I'm willing to pay a little bit more because I can afford to if that keeps my neighbor across the street.
0: Right.
1: And I think that's more in the black culture uh, of us because it's not in other cultures to be like, you know, if they're like, you know, I want to pay what that person's paying. It's like, nah, I don't mind paying a little bit more if it keeps my community together. And also, I mean, if they have five kids over there, I'm single man. So it's a different, uh, barrier of, um, barrier of responsibility that I have to keep going what I got to keep going, though. I do want to keep this going and everything. So, um, in making those decisions around comfortability and and finding that comfortability and that stability as a quality of life, which are, you know, which are key, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But also now you kind of tap more into like a passion too.
0: Sure. So I'm sorry to to cut you off here. I think that this is why I acknowledge that tapping into passion is a privilege. Mm -hmm. There were for sure years where I was... So poor, I couldn't make the ends meet. So we're Mm -hmm. talking out of childhood. So get out of childhood, make it to adulthood. You know, as a single mom, I had a mortgage. I had all these responsibilities. I've been on welfare twice. And I can remember what it was like to make decisions about buying groceries or paying a light bill. Mm -hmm. So when I was in those seasons of my life, it was really lean time. So I can remember a Christmas, one of the first Christmases that I was divorced And I had no money to buy a single gift for my kids. Mm -hmm. So I sent them to their dad's house so that they they would I knew they would get gifts from there, Mm -hmm. but that they might they might forget that they didn't get any from me that year. You Mm -hmm. know, so I say that because I think that there is something that growing up in poverty gave me, which is a certain level of resiliency that I didn't know I would need in other phases of my life. Because I think when you grow up poor, you think, well, that's fine when I get be an adult. I'm not going to be, be poor. Good. Yeah, I'm going to be good. It's yeah. never going to happen to me again. And I can remember the time that I, like, played around with DTE and let them shut me off and having to be like, now, what did my mother do? What do I remember about being a kid that I can do here? And in that case, the one time my lights were shut off, I sent my kids to go spend a night somewhere and I paid the bill and it was on the next day and they never knew the lights were off, right? So some of that gave me some training and preparation for when times would get really lean. But what it also gave me was a really strong sense of appreciation for how to move and maneuver out of poverty because it's so many things other than how much money you make. It is a mindset. It is how you spend your money. It is the decisions you make about money. It's the relationship that you have with money. It's all of those things. And I can say this having been a person who has moved through every phase of that. So even when people have been surprised that I have left a corporate career to do entrepreneurship full time. Yes, that is a privilege. But what I also know is there is a responsibility that comes when you have figured out and, and somewhat mastered some of those same concepts. You have a responsibility to show other people how to do it. So if I can tell you how to get off welfare, right? I know how to do that. Again, having to be in the welfare line, line twice in my life, I knew how to get off of welfare. I also know how to scale businesses into, you know, multiple six and seven figures. So I say that because it's important for me now to not just make more money, but to live the quality of life that I, I desire, which is a simple life, make it <laughs> you'd be surprised at the level of simpleness that comes as you get older. I don't need my days to be super full. I don't need to be doing all the things. I don't need to be at all the things. I just want to have a, a really strong impact and I want to help my community and I want to do it in my own way. But now I meet entrepreneurs who are in the struggle and they're trying to figure out how to operate their businesses. And I wake up every day being like, you know what? I'm on fire to help people figure that part out. Because what we don't talk about enough is here is what real entrepreneurship is going to look like. Because when it was happening to me, I thought, man, I must not be that good at this stuff because I'm struggling. Right. Why am I still at check and go? Or, why is my account overdrawn, or whatever? Or, why is my credit bad? Well, no, no, let's talk about this because those are just parts of the journey.
1: I agree. And, and and I like even how you introduce that whole concept of relationship with money. And, like, I often tell people, I feel a little guilty in this entrepreneurship because of my father, my grandfather. It's been around me, but it still didn't internalize until I think it internalized faster with me because I can see it and I can call my dad, like, hey, da, 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 you know what I'm saying? And, da, 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 like, and I pass. I pass that on to my project manager, my team. You know, I love Suzanne, Suzanne Clegg. And we talked, That's why we started this business breakfast club thing, because it's like certain things I just see because I've been around it and I've seen it enough. But that relationship with money, I want to say, and people wonder, it's like, why do people go so broke? Like even these NBA players, because when you when your relationship with money is not scarcity, yeah. you have such a you feel like, I don't know when I'm going to get this again. So I need I need a Rolex. Yep. I don't know when I'm going to get this again, so I need these red bottoms. I don't know when I'm going to get this again, so, you know, when I go to the party, I'm going to buy a booth for everybody. Like, it's it's almost like you feel as though it's going to be taken away. For sure. As soon as I get it. So let me at least get something out of it. Yes. So I feel like all this hard work and my head down and I worked hard and I can walk in, the you know, walk back to the neighborhood and it's like, yo, check out the rollie. You know, it ain't ticking. And now, you know, three, more, three months down the line, you're like, damn. How much can I sell this rally for? You know what I'm saying? And now you're in the pawn shop because it's all types of things that happen in in poverty. You know, pawn shop, uh, borrowing money from this Mm -hmm. person, robbing Peter to pay Paul. And like you say, even just that that fear of like, okay, I'm getting government assistance because I make twenty four thousand dollars a year. And it's this new job opportunity. I don't know if I could stay there. They're offering thirty thousand dollars a year. So technically on paper, it's like, okay. I'm kinda I have the opportunity to make more, but do I want to stay here I'm and sure. you know it, these are the decisions that are going on as you're making these decisions
0: for sure, I'm gonna tell you, you know. there was a time where I said, I don't know how people buy groceries without a bridge card. Yeah. I remember thinking, how is that possible? like with <laughs> all these kids, who's buying this many much in groceries? Yeah. yeah, so there was definitely a time where I needed the assistance I was getting because the ends weren't weren't meeting. But I've definitely grown with having to have a a more positive relationship with my money. And I'll say this very candidly that, like, people think that the more money you make, the less problems you have. No, I will tell you the more complicated your problems become. Mm -hmm. And money tends to just be a resource to help you solve those problems faster. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't careful then the money becomes, uh, you become at war with the money because now you're spending so much of it that you have to work just as hard to keep making more money. It feels a bit like a Ponzi scheme, right? Yes. You got to keep bringing in new money to pay off the, new, the old stuff. Mm-hmm. So as I've worked, particularly in this entrepreneurship space, it's how do I help people have a, a healthy relationship with their money that says, you want to be able to charge more, save more so you can sleep better at night. So you can get some of that anxiety out of your system, because the more that the more wild that we tend to be with our money, the more anxiety we tend to to have. And now we're making business decisions based on money. Right. So I typically will say I don't go after the work I do because of how much money it makes. I go after the energetic alignment, how it makes me feel. I don't take projects for money. In fact, I've turned down more work than I've probably taken. Because if it's just about money, then I'm not going to show up and be the best person I can be for that work anyway. Mm -hmm. And so it's definitely been a long road to get there. But I say that because I meet so many entrepreneurs who are actively in the struggle. You ask any small business owner, what's your number one challenge? They're going to tell you money and funding. Where do I go get it? And most of what I teach people through some of our programming is I want you to make your money in the services that you provide, do not expect somebody to come save you because they're not coming. I've been, you know, I've been very fortunate where I haven't had to borrow a ton of money to run my business, and I've only taken out one small business loan, and it was very nominal. But I say that because I know that's a privilege. The other part is, is I don't care how much money I've had or how good my credit has been. It's been times where I've been denied for loans. Yeah. So I'm saying that to say, even when somebody is saying, "Okay, I'm doing the right things. I'm trying to go knock on these doors," and they're not opening i tell people don't even focus on that focus yeah. on just doing your business well and generating positive and consistent revenue because that's going to be what's going to get you through the door not these people who are promising to come save us you know and, and, and even in that
1: i like that you share that like um in making that relationship because you're right it's, it's the mentality that that you're shifting like i look at most decisions and i say okay I need to lower my overhead. That's how Mm -hmm. I look at things, but it's from my grandfather and my dad. So instead of like heightening my overhead and, and sometimes it's like, okay, I know I can take this impact. I can take this risk and it's tough because- you know, it's propaganda. It's media. You know, you yeah. turn on, you turn on the news, and then you see like some twelve-year-old that does exactly what you do, and yeah. on the Today Show, and it's like, yeah, you know, Amazon just signed a fifty million dollar deal, and you're like, man, how that twelve-year-old <laughs> doing? How did he get on? You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and it's like, you know, so it's very tough because you're thinking you're not moving along. I honor business as far as how I look at it of the granddad, dad thing, like. I don't look at who makes the most money. Mm -hmm. I always, like people are now mad at Elon Musk, but I always looked at him Mm -hmm. like he was an idiot. I honor businesses that have been in business the longest. That's right. So if you can be in business the longest and you can operate at whatever, like sometimes the goal, like you say, it's not making the most money, but it's basically being able to, I call it making plays. You can make the plays that you want to make. It's some old school businesses that are out here that you don't even know that have relationships so intrinsically aligned. Like I'm so connected to Hot Sam's. Mm -hmm. And as I keep going... Cliff or Tony call me, it's whatever. And I'm not the only person like that with Hot sure. Sims. But they've been around long enough where they've built the tradition and they have the network. But they're operating at the at the uh, risk aversion, that's right. one of those uh, classic business terms, that they would like to operate. Because sometimes when you bring on those bigger projects for a lot of money, it's going to be other stresses. And also when you flaunt your money, that's the other thing. Life becomes more transactional. That's right. So like if LeBron James walks in a room for a business deal... I'm creative, you're creative. It's it's us three. Rachel, Kari, and LeBron James. It's a it's like a a a a silent it's a silent uh responsibility where LeBron James is thinking like, "All right, whatever happened, I'm probably going to have to put up all the money." Mhm. And I'm using him as an exponential example. But that's what happens when you start flaunting money around any other thing. And then people kind of become careless with your money. It's like, well, you know, you got the Rolex, you got the Cadillac. I mean, you know, we lose money on this venture. You really, I mean, do you really care? And that can be a huge problem as you make more money. So you have to operate, in my mind, and that's the cool thing about me because it's like people be like, oh, he probably ain't got two dimes to rub together. And it's like, that's a good thing. A granddad (laughs) thing. Keep thinking that. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) A granddad thing. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not walking in with the onus and the responsibility of like, well, he'll pay for everything. So it doesn't make a difference whether we fail or succeed. It's almost like this is monopoly money. You know what I'm saying? Hell no, this ain't monopoly money. (laughs) This is business money where we got to make it make sense, make it make sense on paper. And you're doing that with a lot of
0: businesses. Yeah. Yeah. I would just say I I think why I'm so passionate about this is because I have have walked the same walk Mm -hmm. that the entrepreneurs I'm working with have walked meaning right. I'm not talking to you from a place of I've never done it I'm mm-hmm. talking to you from having zero dollars in the bank and scaling a business being a single person doing the work to hiring a team of people so I I have to the same automation delegation strategies and systems that I teach people I've had to live and it's uncomfortable and difficult most of the time so i'll I'll use an example you got a chance to stop by our business conference a couple months ago yeah and that conference, the, the Run Your Business Like a Boss conference, was a vision I had had for multiple years. But at least three years, I've had this vision of being able to produce a one-day conference and make it different than most other small business conferences. Most conferences will talk about if you got an idea, how to start, how to do this. They're talking to everybody. I really wanted to focus on how do we run businesses? What's, mm-hmm. what, what's the practical knowledge that we need to know when we're doing the day-to-day struggle? And one of the things that was a big pivot for me was being able to lean on a team. And that's been my whole focus for this year of 2022 is how to fire myself from the day-to-day of my own business. Mm. And I brought in some folks from my team to build the conference for me. And I was so out of the weeds that when I got there, I said, the color is blue. It's blue in here. Hilarious. I was like. So I was kind of upset, I said, I wanna wear my blue blazer, not Mm -hmm. my gold, our colors are blue and gold. I wanna wear my blue blazer, not my gold blazer. Mm -hmm. And for a second I said, I'm really, I should talk to somebody about this, cause why didn't I, and I said, wait a minute, just stop. Just stop for a second. Look at the growth that you were able to have, that they took care of every single detail down to the color of the room. And you didn't have to know about it because you were off raising money for the conference, getting people here, getting the support. And so I say that because when I talk about delegation, you know, that was one of the examples I used that day of I've had to fire myself from giving a shit about what color the, the place he is. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm caring about? Where the money coming from. Mm-hmm. So and I say that because when I'm teaching entrepreneurs that. Not everybody is going to have a business that's, that's scalable. Not everybody is going to hire an employee. For me, I want to create jobs for people. I want to create the kind of jobs that at a place I want to work, which means I need people to help me bring those visions together. So I say that because the same getting out of my comfort zone, the same you know upper limit problems that other people have, I've had them too. So now I can speak from a place of humility and having to say, I know what it's like to have hired too fast. And had to fire early or hiring the wrong people and not getting the right value in production or having to trust people who are smarter than me and pay a lot of money for that. Like, I know all of those things. And so I say that as as an entrepreneur, that's where I get so passionate about saying none of us are doing this perfect. In fact, most of us don't even really know what we're doing. Yep. But if we can be transparent enough with other entrepreneurs, then we can take away some of the information that people are hearing on social media that's clouding their judgment, that's making them feel like they're doing it wrong when they don't have a lot of followers. I don't even use social media, and I probably will start doing more of it because my, my customers aren't finding me on social media. They're yeah. finding me through word of mouth and through how I'm able to help support other people that they know. So I say that because when we sometimes can look at followers and this and what somebody's doing, it makes us feel inferior. Yes. Yeah. When that's not even that's not even real, you know, Mm -hmm. so I appreciate the opportunity to be able to have these kinds of conversations with people because that's what really matters. What really matters is where where's your heart in your business? What is it that you're doing that you give a shit about? Mm -hmm. Because when you're waking up every day from a place of pouring into other people and making an impact and helping the resources come, and I, I don't want to say this to say that I don't think about money or resources, but that is not why I do it. And every single day, I get connected with different people and different opportunities, and the resources for the businesses come, which is how I can do it. And you know, at such a complex level at this point in
1: time, I love it. And I mean, I've definitely referred you to, I've referred you, you know, to a couple of people at this point. You've done some work with them. You were big in the Gig Fair. We're gonna talk about an iteration of that again soon. This has been a wonderful discussion. I also. So with add on everything you say, definitely stick to your passion and be committed. This stuff isn't overnight. If it's as, you know, the propaganda or the media wing comes to me in marketing, it it makes it seem as though business happens like that. Mm -hmm. And usually if a business happens like that, I look at it like it's people behind the scenes that have probably 30, 40, 50, 60 years of business, like propping up that 12 year old. Yeah. And it's a good marketing ploy to be like, okay, the 12-year-old probably will sell better than the 90-year-old guy that's been in business for 70 years for what we want to sell. Also, the other thing I often want to, you know, have started presenting is a lot of the businesses you see and you're going to hear about, if you're not really getting in the circles and connecting with the actual businesses you can touch, they're, they are on the new, they're, they're public companies. So mm-hmm. like uh, a company that's on the New York Stock Exchange is functioning In a different level than you and your business, because if you're functioning and feeding basically investors, that's what a shareholder is, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like really feeding the person that's going to like the in the end consumer. That's different. And I'm not saying that a a company on the New York Stock Exchange doesn't care about the end user, but it's. It, I would say it kind of takes a second. It takes a back seat to my shareholders. Mm-hmm. So we need to do different things for our shareholders. So don't always think that you need to compete in that. And then the conference was wonderful. It was kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, walking in the cell phone store. You know, you're always like, man, you got all this stuff for new for new customers, for new customers, because that's how a lot of these business conferences are. It's for startups. It's for new. And it's like you don't even really know what you're doing until I think that's you've right. been in business for about seven years. But the person that's been in business for seven years, where are the resources for them? And and you, you know, you sometimes feel out the loop and you're, you know, trying to like rig a network together of some people. You met this person and that person. I was on vacation. This person said they do what I do. And you actually gave some resources to the people operating the businesses and running the businesses at different points. And that's the that's some game that um, is so essential. So, I, I, I tipped my hat. I was glad to be there in effect when I was in effect. And, you know, you had some uh, heavyweights in there, shout out Nina Payne, <laughs> and so many other people putting that together. So, classic okay. Detroit is different questions as we get to a close. So, very first car, year making and model, and year you got it.
0: Oh, gosh. Very first car would have been uh, a 1991 Mercury Cougar. Okay. And I got it in 2001. Mm. So I guess it would have been about a 10-year-old car when I got it. Mm -hmm. And, oh, gosh, I remember buying it from one of those buy here, pay here places. So I put some money down with one of my refund checks. And I would have to make this car payment every month. So let's say I was paying about $200 a month. And they had one of those like male far swipe passes underneath it. Oh, man. So if you didn't make your payment, your car wouldn't start. Yeah. And I would pay my payment every month, but there would still be times I would get out there and my car wouldn't start. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking there is going to come a point in time where I do not need to do this anymore anymore. And I ended up paying the car off, and it was fine after that. But, yeah, that was my very first car. That was mine. I paid for it. And if I'm actually telling it wrong, that was the first real car that I had. But Mm. before that, I also had a 1991 Chevy Cavalier. I bought it. And in one day, I paid $500 for it. And I bought it not realizing that the hood latch was broken. Mm. I got it on the freeway, and it smashed my windshield. <laughs> Whoa, that's
1: man, that's got to be one of the scariest. Like you felt like you was in a Fast and Furious movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I don't count that car as my first car because I never got to drive it anywhere. I was like a Fast and the Furious yeah, situation. Yeah, but the, the Mercury Cougar was for real my first car. Okay, uh, you're the DJ
1: at the end of the Detroit fireworks, Woodward and Jefferson. You get to play three songs. Ooh. What songs you playing?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I would say these are probably my top favorite songs in the world. What You Won't Do For Love by Bobby Caldwell. Mm. All I Do by Stevie Wonder. Okay. And I would say anything. Ooh, let's see. Now I'm going to say, I'm a, and I have so many different diverse favorites, but now I'm going to say anything off of Beyonce's Renaissance album.
1: Okay, because I was going to say, you going to have them old folks in there ballrooming. <laughs> you're going to have people. Throw something from running. you going to have some there. white linen and some top hats out there with that playlist. <laughs> They're going to be like, oh, we love that DJ. <laughs> All right, last one. Um, you can rename what word after 1D Trader. Who would it be and why?
0: Hmm. Oh, that, that's a tough one. I would say probably I, I think Stevie Wonder just comes to mind for me. And it's going to definitely be somebody who I think has a rich musical history from Detroit. So for me, that could be anybody that could be Aretha or Stevie Wonder, it could be any one of those folks, but probably somebody from Motown, I would probably say.
1: That's cool. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. We're definitely going to uh, get you back in effect. We're going to do some more things. Uh... The Gig Fair concept is where we met, and I think that we're going to keep that seed and putting some water on it, seeing what comes together, because mm-hmm. that was always big on me. It's like I go to these conferences, and I'm like, get these people some, some business, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying, especially for the solopreneurs, people like me, you know, and, and knowing where you are, a solopreneur, and when you can scale up, when you scale back, and how to function.
0: So. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Peace. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.